Good stuff. Good stuff. Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, please. When I used to read the Seattle PI, when I lived in the Seattle area, there was a columnist who I had little tidbits of stuff. And one of the little bits was the inclusion of an aptronym that she would encounter as she went about her day. An aptronym is a name of a person, a real name that's especially suited to the profession of that person. Like Julie Angst, the psychiatrist who published works about anxiety. Yeah, really. Or Jack Armstrong, who was a major league pitcher. Or Jeff Bagwell, who was a first baseman in the major league baseball. Lloyd Ball, a volleyball player. Lane Beachley, an Australian champion surfer. Sarah Blizzard, what do you think her job was? Meteorologist for the British Broadcasting System. <laughs> yeah. Now, Wordsworth, you know what he was, right? Famous author, a poet, a Wordsworth. Margaret Court, famous tennis champion. Ah, uh, aptronyms. And one last one, or two more, I guess. Larry Speaks, what was his job? White House spokesman. Yeah. And then Jim Kick, the football star. <laughs> By God's unmistakable sovereignty, we have come in Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 2, to two ladies with names that were not aptronyms. Follow as I read Philippians 4, verse 2. I urge Yodia, and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Yodia and Syntyche. Now, I, I, what are their names? Who were these women? Yodia. The name means fragrance. Now, it's also possible with a slightly different meaning, but it also means a positive thing. But depending on how it's spelled, one of the spellings would mean that her name was Fragrance, and the one named Sintiki, her, the literal rendering of her name would be a happy chance or a happy journey. But what does Paul write to these people? He says, I'm imploring Yodia and Sintiki to get along. These two ladies were not getting along in the church at Philippi. And the Apostle Paul says, I want fragrance and happy chance to mirror their names, not their behavior. What was their identity? Look at how he identifies them just in these brief verses. Look in verse 3. He says, these women labored with me in the gospel. They labored with me in the gospel. That says something very important. Number one, they were believers. You know, we could look at other references in the book of Philippians, but these two ladies were believers in Jesus Christ. And if they were laboring with Paul in the gospel, they were what we would call today good servant disciples. 
They were people like we just recognized that were serving in our Awana club. These weren't a couple, of, a couple of ladies up in the balcony like those two old guys on uh, the Muppets who were looking down going, ar, 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 about everything. These were, these were women that were right in there with the Apostle Paul doing the ministry. Can you imagine how Paul must have felt writing this? You know, the word labor here, when it says they labored with me in the gospel, it's actually a word that, that's kind of a warfare word, and it kind of means something along the line of, they were right next to me fighting the battle, fighting the spiritual battle. So he's talking about people that he respected and loved, a ministry colleague, if you will, in a way. And yet, as John MacArthur put it, the tragic conflict, the tragic conflict between Yodia and Santiki reveals that even the most mature, faithful, committed people can become so selfish as to be embroiled in controversy if they are not diligent to maintain unity. On one of our visits to the mission field, um, I was given the topic on which I was to preach. I was going to speak at a, a missionary retreat for several days. Here's your topic, Dave. Bearing with one another in love. That's an odd topic. What I found out was, even missionaries have a little difficulty getting along once in a while. In fact, do you know that the number one reason that full-time missionaries leave the field and come home is because they can't get along? What was the problem with these ladies? It's important to understand that, first of all, their problem was not doctrinal. How do I know that? Because every time the Apostle Paul or the Apostle Peter or John encountered a doctrinal problem, he named it and he said, you're wrong. Or he would say, this is what you should be believing. And the Apostle Paul doesn't say anything close to that. He doesn't say, now that Yodia, she's become a heretic. He didn't do it. And there were times when he did do that. Look at this. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, the Apostle Peter... And this is Paul talking. I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. I would like to have been a fly on that wall. I mean, he, he says, I got right in his face because he was sinning. That's not what's written here. This was not a doctrinal controversy. And originally, this was not a sin issue. If it had been a sin issue to start with, the Apostle Paul would have said, Sintiki, you did wrong there. But he doesn't say that. If one or both of them had sinned, there would be... We see mentions of that throughout the New Testament as well. There were times when they had to say, this guy is wrong. But they didn't say that. And so what we understand is that the conflict, the problem between these ladies, was not of an absolute nature. In other words, it wasn't absolutely right or wrong. It wasn't discernible to say, this is it and this is the answer. There was a problem between people. A different perspective became walls of division instead of bridges of unity. I quote at length from John Phillips here, and I'm going to quote him later. He, he seemed to really capture some of the spirit of this. The pattern is familiar to us. Words pass between two people over something quite inconsequential. 
Soon the two are not on speaking terms at all. They look the other way when they pass each other on the street. Spouses are drawn into the squabble. Sympathizers are recruited and the church takes sides. Personality difference, doctrinal difference, procedural differences are fuel for the fire. With the whole church at loggerheads, its testimony suffers as the unsaved witness the argument. The work of the church comes to a halt because nobody can agree on anything. Every issue, every suggestion for furthering the ministry of the church becomes the football of church politics. The more spiritual members of the fellowship make a few attempts to bring order, sanity, and Christian charity back to the fore, and then either retire sadly into their shells or leave in search of more congenial gatherings. Is it possible for two people in such a disagreement to come together again? I want to say absolutely yes. And we want to spend most of our time today saying, what was the solution to their conflict? Well, the solution to their conflict is in chapter 4, verse 2, when he says, be of the same mind, how? What? In the Lord. It is possible to be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, I believe that chapter 4, verse 2 is sort of a go-to point for the whole book of Philippians thus far. If, and you'll see here as we go back through, but the Apostle Paul laid a lot of groundwork before he finally came and said, now listen, Yodia and Syntyche, apply what I've just been talking about. What has he been talking about? Well, I would start here and say, how can we become of one mind in the Lord? And I would go all the way back to chapter 1, verse 6. Let's look at chapter 1, verse 6. We're going to look at a whole series of these scriptures through here. The Apostle Paul said, Being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now the Apostle Paul was writing this book knowing that Yodia and Syntyche were arguing with each other. He knew what was going on. Obviously he addressed it. And yet he says at the beginning of this book, I am confident that God is at work in you. And I am confident that when God started a work, what he intends to do is finish it until you are just like Jesus Christ. When we are having a difficulty with another believer, one of the starting points is to say, I believe God is at work in them. It's a real temptation for us sometimes, especially when things get heated, to say, I don't even know if they're a Christian. That's kind of a go-to point, and we just kind of write them off. No, God is at work. And we need to remember God is at work. God never quits working in his children. I cannot give up on you because God has not given up on you. And if I'm willing to look at myself and say God is still at work in me, and he's going to keep on working in me, if that is true, then I need to look at you and think the same thing. God is at work in every believer. Chapter 1, verse 7. We need to remember our teamwork. Just as, as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both my chains and defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace. When I see a video like that, a one a video, or last week we had one about people who serve in general, I get a warm feeling in my heart. I say, isn't that great? Isn't that great? Isn't that great? Isn't that great? That's what the Apostle Paul's doing here in verse 7. 
He's thinking back and saying, man, I remember those days in Philippi. I remember being in jail and that guy treating us bad and then he got saved. You know, the Philippian jailer who was part of this church. And I remember Lydia and I remember Sintiki and I remember Yodia and oh man, they did some great things like this and that. He remembered it. And so he said, I, I know God is at work in you because we serve together. There's a time when these women were shoulder to shoulder with Paul. Maybe they were even best friends in busy in God's work. We've got to remember that we have been working together and approach people on that basis. Verse 21, we need to reevaluate our objectives. Verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If we get into a disagreement, a conflict that isn't about Bible doctrine or issues of sin and righteousness, then why do we get so invested in those issues? Is that what it looks like when you are living for Christ? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if this doesn't go my way, there is going to be heck to pay. We ought to die on the hill of doctrine if we have to, to defend it. And we ought to go the distance with a sinning brother or sister, as hard as it is, for their sake, so that they will be walking with the Lord. But when we are disagreeing about something other than doctrine and other than righteousness, there needs to be a wonderful spirit of, of sweet reasonableness. James 3.17, the wisdom that is from above is pure peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits. Because our objective is to walk with Christ. Got to retune our objectives. We need to respect our enemies. And I'm not talking about the other people in the body of Christ here. Look at verse 27 of chapter 1. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your, your affairs, your daily living, that you stand fast in one spirit, you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, that is, the devil and the world around us, which is to them a proof of perdition. When I was in Tukwila, they told me of an old conflict. There used to be a window right behind the platform in the old building, and the sun would shine in there at about 11.55, and the preacher looked like Moses coming down the mountain. <laughs> and part of the church wanted to cover the windows, and part of the church didn't want to cover the windows. And by the time I was there, because that was old history, and they said, ha, 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 we almost put the church over that one. Ha, 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 not funny. The enemy, the enemy wants us to squabble. The enemy wants people out there to know that we don't get along, because if we don't get along, they get a pass. We need to respect the enemy enough to say, I will put my, my personal issues aside, and we will come together, and I will not care about these things that do not matter. 
We need to respect our enemies. In chapter 2, we need to reassess the empowerment of salvation. Therefore, if there is any consolation of Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through a selfish ambition or the desire to put self forward or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others. There is no excuse for not living in unity in the body of Christ. There is no excuse for that because we have the, the comfort or the consolation, the empowerment of Christ. We have the, his love put in our hearts. We have the Holy Spirit. We have affection and mercy. We have the resources we need. It is possible to walk in oneness, but it requires having our mind on other people and caring about them. We have what we need. There's no excuse for us to say we can't do it. In verses 5 through 8, we need to recognize true greatness. <laughs> Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery or something to be clung to like a, a, a prized treasure that's been stolen, he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, and he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. What is true greatness? There is no greater love than a man do what? Lay down his life for his friend. Now, we think about that in warfare. That's the motto on the CIA wall of fame with the stars for the CIA agents that have given their life, as they have in recent years. We think about that, uh, you know, recently there was a young man who scooped a kid out of the way and pushed him out of the way and was run over and killed. I, I forget the circumstance. I just read it in the paper this week. Wow, there's no greater love than that a man should lay down his life for his friend. And it also applies to disagreements in church. There's no greater love than that we lay down our life. Say, so it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What matters is that we work together and that we move ahead in the Lord. Am I so great that I cannot humbly confess my fault and willingly submit myself to others out of love for the Lord. Jesus said, if I have washed your feet to the disciples, you ought to wash one another's feet. Yodi and Syntyche had forgotten about that. Chapter 2, verse 9. We need to rest in God's exaltation. Jesus humbled himself all the way to the point of a terrible death, and look what happened in verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Are you resting in God's exaltation? Who is it that's sitting at the throne at the right hand of the Father? It's Jesus. Who will be judging those who abused him? It's Jesus. You can let go of your pride and work humbly together with others, knowing that if and when you need it, 
or if and when the church needs it, God will exalt you. 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Rest in God's exaltation. If you're truly right about something, God has a way later on of bringing it back around and somebody will come along and say, wow, we should have done this. And you're thinking, yeah, we should have done that. (laughs) And at that point, you know, well, maybe I was thinking the right thing. But I let it go because working together is more important than all of that. Chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. We need to be concerned for our testimony. Do all things without complaining and disputing. That you may become blameless and harmless children of God. Uh, I am part of the the leading group for our group of churches in the Northwest. And uh, we work together to do various things. And sometimes those decisions don't go the way I want them to go. Recently, there was one of those decisions. And one of the guys came to me and he said, and, and, and really nobody knew except a few people that I thought of a diff- in a different light, And he came to me and he said, I'm glad to see you continuing to participate, continuing to make an investment. I know this didn't go the way you wanted it to go. But I've still been grumbling and complaining about it a little bit. I'm trying to stop. Talked to one of my friends on the phone this week and I said, hey, can I ask you a question? I thought I got that. That has to be the last time I do that. Because if I do it very much more, it's going to start to be a divisive thing. And that isn't right. God's people voted. God's will has been done. And I have to say, it's all in the Lord. I cannot be a grumbler or a complainer. I have to trust that God is in control and God is working. And so, by doing that, I will be concerned for my testimony. Yesterday I was down at the gym working out and there is a prominent local elected official who works out there too and several times I've said to him I like what you're doing and yesterday I said I like everything you're doing except one and I told him what I thought hey he he needs inputs like everybody else I was positive but I told him and and then we got talking about his organization and my organization And I had to just stop right there and say, you know what? I am not going to talk about anything that goes on here in any negative light whatsoever. No, I didn't have some big negative thing. I was just going to say, yeah, sometimes at church we have difficulties getting along and so on. You know, just kind of general like that. I thought, no. I don't want him hearing that. He's an unbeliever. I'm not going to tell him that we don't get along because we do. And there are times when we struggle with that. But he says, don't grumble and complain out of concern for your testimony. Is the reputation of God's church worth your humility? To let go of your thing, whatever it is. I think it is. Chapter 2, verse 17 through 26. By concern for the spiritual growth of others. 
If I am being poured out, verse 17, as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I'm glad. And I rejoice with you all. What was Paul concerned about more than anything in the world? He was concerned that people know Christ and grow in Christ. He said, if I have to be persecuted for that to happen, if Christians are going to criticize me out of some crazy thought process, if that, I don't care about that. What I care about is that you are growing in the Lord. In verse uh, 19, he says, I'm going to send Timothy to you because Timothy thinks like me, verse 20. He said, verse 21, everybody else is seeking their own priorities, but not the things of Christ. But you know his proven character. Timothy thought the same way. He was concerned for the spiritual growth of others. And so we have to ask that question. Are we so concerned for the spiritual growth of others that we would sacrifice our own rightness when it's not an issue of doctrine and it's not an issue of righteousness. Is your reputation of being right worth the sacrifice of other lives? No, no it's not. Chapter 3, verse 10. By desiring to know Christ in a transforming way. How are you going to get along? How are you going to set aside disagreements? Verse 10 of chapter 3. Paul says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. This whole section of chapter 3, Paul is talking about the transforming power of Christ. Do you want to know Christ and be like him, or do you want to be someone great in your own estimation? Real temptation for us to, to say, this is who I am and who I want to be, and if anybody takes away from that, there's going to be a problem. The Apostle Paul said, I want to be like Christ. That's what I'm after. And humility is okay if that's what it takes. And as part of that, we need to see ourselves as still needing growth. Verse 12, not that I've already attained, not that I'm already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus lay hold of me. One of the things that I discovered years ago, I mean, I, I, it took me about, uh, let's see, oh, 12, 13 years in the ministry to figure this out. You can see what a rocket scientist I am. But as I picture a church board meeting, I picture that table because that's where we have them and and wherever we've had them in other churches, they're always around the table like that. So when I point over there, you know what I'm talking about. But, but one day, I sat and looked across the table, and I thought to myself, if I am so smart, and my ideas are so good, might he not have a good idea also? Could I be the only one at this table with a good idea? Well, that's possible. But is it likely? No. But sometimes that's how we look across the table. We're sitting at a committee meeting, we're making plans to do something, and we think, why can't that person just agree with me? Rather than saying, the Holy Spirit's in them, the Holy Spirit's in me, I'm not perfect, I still need to grow, and so I'm going to genuinely listen. I'm going to genuinely receive. I can't be 100% right unless it's an absolute doctrine of the Bible. Jesus died for our sins, then I'm 100% right. But on all these other variable things, I need to say, you know what? We're all growing together. Verse 16 
by living up to what I know of Christ. The Apostle Paul said, now, as far as we've attained already, as far as we've moved ahead, let's walk by that same rule. So I ask the question of myself, in this conflict that that I'm in, am I living what I already know about the Christian life? Am I living out the truth that God has given me? If I'm not, I'm not right. One more. By living with eternity in view. Chapter 3, verse 20, the Apostle Paul talked about our citizenships in heaven from which we eagerly wait for the Savior. Am I dealing with my sister or brother in such a way that I could see Jesus in the next breath with a clear conscience? Living with eternity in view. How can we be of one mind? By applying all of this truth from God's word. How important is it to resolve conflicts? Well, I direct your attention back to chapter 4, verse 2. It is, so, it is important enough to resolve conflicts that the Apostle Paul named names. Don't you think the Apostle Paul could have written the book of Philippians with all of these instructions and just thought, I hope Yodia and Syntyche get it. We're all guilty of that, aren't we? We're sitting in church. Somebody's preaching and we're thinking, boy, I hope so-and-so's listening. <laughs> the Apostle Paul, by God's inspiration, said, I've got to make sure this gets through. It was that important. I quote again at length from John Phillips. Paul named names. In the end, the only way to deal with some of these problems is to name names and force the two people causing the trouble to face their personal responsibility for what has happened. Paul was no longer skirting around the issue. He was no longer giving veiled hints, appeals, and suggestions. He suddenly and bluntly confronted the parties involved. After 82 verses, he finally nailed the problem down. We can imagine the reaction in Philippi. The church had welcomed Epaphroditus back home. He was the guy carrying this letter. And Epaphroditus had called a meeting for the first reading of Paul's letter. Everybody was there. The place was packed. Epaphroditus, or one of the other elders, broke the seal on the scroll to show that the letter had not been tampered with. And he began to read. Sentence by sentence, the epistle unfolded. Here and there were hints that Paul knew about the squabble. Yodius and Syntyche looked furtively at each other and just as uneasily looked away. They darted angry looks at Epaphroditus. Did he go and blab to Paul? One of them wondered. I'll give him a piece of my mind. Then they heard Paul's words regarding Epaphroditus. Receive him in the Lord. Epaphroditus was mentioned by name in the book too. Receive him in the Lord. And suddenly, like a bolt from the blue, the two ladies heard their own names being read. I beseech Iodia, I beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Like a flash of lightning and a thunderclap, the squabbling pair were named bluntly, inescapably, shockingly. Every eye was on them. 
They felt like curling up and dying on the spot. They wished the ground would open and swallow them. The atmosphere in the meeting room was charged. A deathly hush fell on the gathering. One of the ladies flushed a crimson red and burst into tears. The other bit her lip and turned as white as a sheet. As we recreate the scene in Philippi, we can surmise that the tender pleading of Paul was reflected in the tone of the reader. Instead of an apostolic command accompanied by a warning of dire penalties to come, the Philippians heard a gentle plea linked to the name of the Lord whom Paul had been exalting all through the letter. Mercifully, the reference to Yodia and Syntyche was brief, leaving much unsaid. How would it be if we read some new word from the Lord and our name was there? I heard this quote or read this quote years ago from John MacArthur and it just stuck with me so. He was talking about pastors in particular who fall into sin as we like to use the term. And he said this, you can confess your sin privately to God or he will confess it publicly for you. You can confess your sin privately to God, or he will confess it publicly for you. The time to be right with God over a conflict is early. To say this isn't right, it can't go on. This, this, this instruction about resolving conflicts is throughout the Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 1.10, the Apostle Paul said, I plead with you to all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions. 1 Corinthians 12.25, there should be no schism, no division in the body. 2 Corinthians 13.11, be of one mind. It's so important that God caused Paul to name names. And number two, it's so important that others have to help. Verse 3, he says, I want you to help these women. And he, he, he names them as, as a co-worker. We don't know whether this was a name. He calls him true companion in the New King James. Uh, it could have been somebody's name, like Barnabas meant an encourager. This could have meant a true companion. Or it could have just been a veiled reference to the pastor of this church. Could have been talking about Epaphroditus himself. I want you to help them. It's so important that we have to help people resolve conflict. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 says, If a man is overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. There was a news story this week about a woman on a cruise ship who saw a man in a small boat waving his t-shirt like a flag, trying to get their attention. And her perception was that something was deathly wrong. And they're in a cruise ship, you know, and so she went and told somebody on the cruise ship, hey, I think this guy's in trouble. Nah, those people wave those things all the time. They just kept going. The man was found about two to three weeks later, and the other two people in the boat were dead because of exposure and whatever. The boat was dead in the water and adrift, and that's why he was waving his shirt saying, please help us. She was rightly distraught that the cruise ship staff said, not our problem. It is just as much our duty to help people in spiritual difficulty as it is to save somebody from drowning if it's in our power to do so. 
This past week marked the 100th anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic. The ship that could not sink did because someone didn't take the risks seriously. The risk of an iceberg, the risk of sailing too fast, the risk of whatever. Friend, we need to take the risk of unity seriously enough to humble ourselves and do all in our power to work together. Heavenly Father, help us. We all need your conviction about those times when we are guilty of not promoting the unity of the body. We need your conviction to know when we need to go to a brother or sister and say, I'm sorry. Or when we need to go to a brother or sister and say, you're wrong. Father, help us. We need your help so desperately. We want to have a good testimony for you. We want to live in joy and peace as individuals and as a body of believers. And we pray that you would make that happen. Make us one in you. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.